Welcome back to Martins and More. My name's Mari Rutsch. And I'm Spoon Phillips. And we have a legend to talk about today, Spoon. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing okay. It's been uh, several days now. So I have, I think, gotten over the initial surprise and and initial uh, sadness of the death of David Crosby, um, one of our all-time favorite songwriters and singers and general human beings. So let's celebrate. Absolutely. I completely agree. David Crosby has been a serious influence, and its uh, I don't want to use the term, it's my pleasure to devote this podcast to David Crosby, but I'm certainly looking forward to cheering myself up, remembering all the great music and all the great inspiration he's provided us, and I certainly think it's worthy. Well, yes, I think we uh, it's something to celebrate. Uh, it's often uh, difficult at times when, when someone passes away to um, remember that it's really about what they left behind for everyone. And so, yes, I think we should, you know, talk about David Crosby uh, in the way that we've always remembered him while he was alive. And unfortunately, we cannot possibly afford all of the royalties required to play his music if we were, like we would if we were DJs. But we can certainly talk about it and, and how uh, we came to know him as an artist and uh, certainly look forward to seeing comments in the YouTube and Facebook versions of this podcast from those who uh, uh, listen and have their own favorite memories and stories about Cross or the Cross or what uh, many people have um, uh, described as one of the most unique, if not strangest people they ever uh, encountered. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, he certainly was a, a man of his time and, you know, and beyond his time, considering that he was in his 80s when he was still touring and still recording and, uh, and still wowing audiences. Yeah, right. And it's funny. I've, I was going to say David Crosby is probably the most unique and borderline weirdest of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, but your comment went way further than four people. <laughs> oh, indeed, indeed. I mean, we'll probably jump around, but but uh, Bob Dylan in his memoir, the, the volume one of his memoir, we don't know if we'll ever see volume two, uh, talked about the time he was awarded an honorary doctorate by Princeton University, which at the time he thought was a little ridiculous, since he was still very much in a counterculture kind of guy at that time, as they would have called them back then. And But he went to receive it, and he was accompanied by David Crosby, who wore an elaborate cape, apparently. And Dylan, you know, says that he was, you know, one of the, I don't remember the word he used. I don't think it was weird or strange, but it was something like that. Uh, certainly eccentric. And, uh, but he liked him a great deal and really admired him as an artist. Um, for those who are not that familiar with David Crosby's background, he was the product of a, uh, respectable, very respectable socialite families of going all the way back to uh, the Dutch colonies in New York. Both his mother and father were related in, to some of the major blue bloods in the East Coast. And his father 
uh, was a uh, very famous cinematographer who won uh, the Oscar for Best Cinematographer for High Noon, the Grace Kelly and uh, Gary Cooper movie. So David grow, grew up in a uh, relatively affluent uh, way in Southern California and went to various private schools and and but also being a you know child of his era, discovered rock and roll and uh, but also discovered jazz because of his older brother and the East Coast uh, cool jazz Miles Davis and and Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan that had a big influence on him, which is one of the reasons that he always seemed to be coming to folk music and rock and roll from a different perspective than a lot of his peers. And he eventually uh, dropped out of school uh, to pursue music. He uh, played in Chicago and in uh, Greenwich Village in the folk scene, and then was introduced to Jim McGuinn, who shortly after changed, uh, took on his middle name, Roger McGuinn, and, and they, you know, had a, a rapport. And McGuinn and Hillman of what the later of the birds had already been performing together. And uh, Crosby got introduced to them. And I believe David Crosby said it was at the Troubadour, the famous club in, in Los Angeles, where lots and lots and lots of people were discovered and got their starts, uh, where he got up uh, after a break and actually uh, improvised harmonies with them and was immediately absorbed into the band called the Jet Set at that time. And then uh, they soon after changed their name to the Birds um, because of their connection to, um, and I, I'm not actually sure if it was Chris Hellman or McGuinn, but somebody had a, a, a connection to Dylan's publisher and they actually slipped them, I guess it was the Birds manager probably, uh, that uh, got a, a demo acetate copy of Mr. Tambourine Man before it was even on the radio. And the uh, birds did a did their famous iconic cover of it and um, with McGuinn's 12 string guitar. And of course, they're, you know, Crosby's soaring harmony vocals and became a, you know, it was released the, basically the moment that uh, Dylan's was released and immediately <laughs> went to number one in the charts. Uh, in, both in the UK and the US. And I think we must be talking 1965 here. So the birds, you know, skyrocketed very quickly with their folk rock sound, really among the first people to uh, to play folk music with electric guitars. I know that Dylan had, you know, electric guitars on his second album. In fact, George Barnes, the jazz, uh, famous jazz guitarist, would play bass on Free Will and Bob Dylan, but but they uh, but all that stuff got erased from the tracks. It wasn't released with any of the, you know, and uh, I forget what the Dylan uh, song that was eventually released years and years later was like a rock and rolly kind of song, um, mixed up confusion, I think it was called, and that it wasn't put on. They you know they can they decided to keep Dylan's stuff uh, folky, so the birds really were the you know kind of hit the scene, particularly with the big 12 strings when when the birds went to see uh, the Beatles uh, in San Francisco when they came through and were playing a theater and they were in the balcony and they saw George Harrison pick up this this guitar that made this amazing sound. And of course it was a Rickenbacker 12 string and, uh, and McGuinn and Crosby immediately had to get one, you know, from the stage from where they were, it looked like a 16 guitar because those 12 strings, as you may remember, tuners are behind each other. Yeah. So you only see from the front, it just looks like 
string guitar. But so they immediately went out and after seeing George Harrison perform with a uh, 12 string guitar went out and got electric 12 strings and, and invented the bird sound. And, and of course, McGuinn really absorbed that. But David Crosby's always loved 12 string guitars. And so, you know, they that's where he came out. But almost immediately, he started singing on other people's records because of his wonderfully pure voice. And I think uh, I think I can speak for Mari and myself and we say that we really were introduced to David Crosby as Crosby, Stills and Nash and Crosby, Nash and Young. Absolutely, we were. And uh, tying it back to what you just said about singing on other people's records, uh, Jackson Brown's debut album, Jackson Brown, and it's not called Saturate Before Using, even though a lot of people, including the record company, thought it was because of the cover. I, I grew up thinking that was David Crosby and Graham Nash because when I first discovered CSN, really quickly after that, I found Jackson's music and I just assumed because it seemed like David Crosby and Graham Nash were kind of a pair and wherever one went, the other was there. But it's just David Crosby uh, singing <clears throat> harmonies on Jackson's debut album. And yeah, I, I certainly was introduced to CSNY first. I didn't find Crosby solo material until I dove you know, deeper into CSN. And I think I might have told this story before, but I was so brand new to Crosby, Stills & Nash as a unit when I first discovered their music. Quickly after I listened to them for the first time, I had the opportunity to see them, or so I thought, uh, in Wilkes-Barre. And the ticket said Crosby, and then there was a dash, and then the word Nash. And I was so new to them, I thought that meant all of them. And... <laughs> You know, not to belabor the story, but uh. Uh, when I got there, I quickly realized it was Crosby and Nash. And I kept waiting to hear Southern Cross. And I kept waiting to see Stephen Stills come out after the second song or the third song. And boy, was I, I'll never use the word disappointed, but was I surprised. And it didn't take long after that till I realized there is so much to look for, so much to dive into and discover. David Crosby, Crosby and Nash, Stills and Nash. Still solo stuff, Graham Nash's solo stuff. I mean, there you find these artists, and it's just a giant pile of rabbit holes in in, in the best possible way. But yes, I, I would agree with you. My introduction to David Crosby was CSN. Uh, I don't know if uh, if I would have looked at his career differently if I found him solo before I found him, uh, you know, with the band. But ironically, to tie a lot of this together and be even more uh, on topic here. That's how I met you, and uh, the reason that Spoon and Mari became friends, uh, for better or worse, I don't know if anybody recording this wishes it didn't happen, but I'm still glad it did. Um, I, I basically, we told that story a few times too, we're at the very first Martin Fest. Uh, it's sort of like going to school for the first day, and where are you going to land, where are you going to gravitate to, and, and I, I hear this... Uh, this guy playing, it was either Lee Shore or Triad. You have to remind me, Spoon, but I hear you doing that. And I thought, well, I'm going over by that guy. And that's where I'm going to park. And I don't, I don't know if I don't want to be with other people at this gathering, but that's who I'm going to first. And it was just a, a fast friendship was immediately forged uh, over David Crosby's music. So it, it bears mentioning today. Oh, absolutely. That's absolutely true. It's a, you know, I just got goosebumps actually going all the way back to 2002 in August and an amazingly insanely hot day uh, in a, in a uh, tin roof kind of marquee. Basically, it was just a roof, you know, shelter, but it was really just a roof and posts and picnic tables, concrete floor, and it was in the sun. So it was, you know, it had no shade at all. And I was singing uh, uh, Triad and, and 
opened my eyes and there was uh, Mari Rutsch, uh with this big grin on his face, like right in front of me. It was kind of off-putting at first because, you know, you're, you're, you're being scrutinized, but here was this <laughs> Cheshire cat just like grinning at me with these. And, uh, and then when I'm sure I did Lee Shore immediately after that, if not before that. But uh, yeah, as a ch you know, there's a, the old saying that, you know, I may be old, but I, I got to see all the great bands, uh, all the best bands. That's not really true. I didn't see all the best bands. You know, I was I'm not that old. But as a child, I definitely was seduced by the whole hippie counterculture thing, a very young age. Because on, of course, on television at that time, in shows like Bewitched and, you know, the sitcoms and the, and eventually the Partridge family, it was quite sanitized and very, uh, you know, rated G sort of idea of these free spirits. And of course the pretty girls with the long hair and, and, uh, and the guys wearing the bell bottoms and the multicolored shirts and all that stuff. I, uh, I hooked into that and was always very drawn to it, no matter what I was seeing on television. And I would think that to the quintessential hippie that I remembered was, was Dennis Hopper in Easy Rider, the, you know, the motorcycle guy on the, on the Harley Hog with the frayed buckskin jacket and the long hair and the mustache and the big floppy hat. And, and I, was, I didn't know until many years later that that character was based exactly on David Crosby. That yeah. he was the inspiration for that character. And of course, I, my parents would have never let me go see a movie like Easy Rider, but the pictures and the posters were everywhere and the magazine covers and all that. And so I immediately recognized that in David Crosby as well when I saw him, though I really didn't know who they were, you know, at the time I was still quite young. So I kind of, I discovered them late and I was always anachronistic growing up and as a teen, I was always uh, several years behind my friends who you know, the cutting edge friends. So, you know, by the time punk and new wave was happening, I was still very much stuck at Woodstock for the most part. And, but you know, all those people, the Pink Floyd, Steely Dan, I didn't quite understand just how early those records really came out because I discovered them, you know, similar to you in uh, somewhat down the road. But I do remember David Crosby's just like George Harrison, he appealed to me because he was the oddball. He was the wasn't the he wasn't the uh, and I you know Graham Nash wrote the songs that all the girls loved, the hits, the romance stuff. Steve Stills, of course, had his cool guitar playing um, and and Southern you know Louisiana background and and but Crosby was the, definitely the hippie guy. Though I think he would have considered himself a freak. The freaks, of course were uh, not just peaceniks, but they were the psychedelic people and the, and the people with the real long hair, uh, Yarma Kalkin and, you know, the great, uh, Grateful Dead Jefferson Airplane. Uh, Crosby was always much more uh, connected to that scene, the Bill Graham hippie scene than, and freak scene up in San Francisco, even though he was an LA guy. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of this stuff, you know, people know, people, people know about the fact that, uh, they hit really big because he had left the birds. Graham Nash had was leaving the bird, uh, the Hollies because they kept wanting to do bubblegum pop stuff and wanted to, and were rejecting his more expansive, uh, uh, songs that he started coming up with after turning on. And, and, and he had met and fallen, fell in love with Joni Mitchell, who can blame him. 
And so he was coming to, you know, flew, flew all the way over the pole to come to LA to see her. And, and unfortunately, you know, cheat on his wife that he eventually divorced. But uh, there's a, there's a apocryphal stories about how they actually met. And you can look at this stuff up and you'll see almost everywhere that they first sang together at Cass Elliott's house, which Graham Nash says is absolutely not true that it was at Joni Mitchell's house that Crosby and Stills first uh, started singing together at Cass Elliott's house. They certainly had dinner at Cass Elliott's house, but Graham Nash is adamant that it was at Joni Mitchell's house where they sang uh, um, uh, You Don't Have to Cry. And he said, do that one more time and put on his harmony and blew everybody away. And that's, you know, where that's how they, that's how they hit. And they're chestnuts now, and and for a lot of people listening here, they weren't even born at that time, or or even if they were, that was a long time ago, and you're so used to hearing that stuff on the radio. But people singing in the three-part harmony, taking the Everly Brothers' patented two-part harmony everybody was doing, including the Hollies, including the Birds, including Stills and Crosby, and adding that third really changed, really uh, blew everybody away. And particularly because they just melded so good together. And unlike the Beatles where, where Lennon McCartney and Simon Garfunkel at times sound like one voice, almost like a Tuvan throat singer from you know, Upper Mongolia, uh, Cross Joseph and Ash, you could always hear them. You always heard the, the three of them. And, but all, but in their, you know, that layered, way they did that and uh and you know first time i heard helplessly hoping i was totally hooked and you know i may even have heard four-way street before i heard uh the first record i don't remember now but i immediately oh, wow. got immediately got uh, the first and second album deja vu and you know after i'd heard four-way street at somebody's house and uh, and they probably played me the other stuff as well and uh, so i was you know that that was my first real favorite act after Dylan and the Beatles. I had grown up with older siblings. So I, it was, you know, all about Dylan and the Beatles to me until, until Cross, Stills and Nash. And then, uh, you know, Steely Dan and Pink Floyd and other people came up later, but, and, and we've been through the, we've, we've been through this before talking about influences, Paul Simon and Simon and Garfunkel, but that was really my sister's music, though I absolutely loved it and listened to it all the time, and and James Taylor and Cat Stevens and all those people were popping out at the time, but but it was really uh, Crosdale's and Nash, and it was Guinevere, and it was uh, and again because of my the, admiring the uh, the hippie thing and the you know anti-war movement was going on, David Crosby letting his freak flag fly as he said. Uh, it was a huge influence on me as a as a kid, for better or worse, probably to my mother's chagrin. <laughs> so I, you know, I was still pretty young, but as an influencer, not just on. Uh, I mean, my mom even got me a buckskin jacket. She was visiting New York. They were visiting New York, and I was probably in third grade. So we're I didn't want to reveal that age, but let's say we're still, you know, Vietnam War still going on, and they bring me back this buckskin jacket like a, you know, <laughs> Buffalo Bill, you know, thing. And, and so not only did it hook into my love of the whole Wild West stuff from that era and Bill Hick, Wild Bill Hickok and all those stories and, 
and Buffalo Bill Cody, um, but also Dennis Hopper, that guy on the posters, and David Crosby. And so I wore that. I wore it to death. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I think a cat actually peed on it at one point, and that was the end of the jacket. But uh, oh. but it was a nice, expensive, you know. I wore it. I mean, I wore it and wore it and wore it until really it was too small for me. But uh, influencer as a music person, I was introduced to Jackson Brown from the second album for Every Man, and um, somebody brought I brought it over, loaned it to my brother. I immediately heard uh, Take It Easy. I had not heard the Eagles version of Take It Easy, so for me, the Jackson Brown version of Take It Easy with with Sneaky Pete's pedal steel and stuff and, and slightly different lyrics and no banjo um, yeah. is, was Take It Easy to Me, but that completely got me. And David Crosby sings on, uh, on For Every Man and maybe on one other, and maybe one other, I don't remember, it might just be For Every Man, and, uh, but because uh, Doug Haywood also does uh, the male vocals on there too. But, um, but because David Crosby was on the record, that was what really sold me on Jackson Brown. It was like, okay, this guy has David Crosby on his records. Then, and then I found out he did the vocal on Dr. My Eyes. And um, is he on Rock Me on the Water, probably? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. That, you know, that, so then from then on, you know, I was a huge uh, Jackson Brown fan. And, of course, David Lindley fan, too, because I discovered David's great guitar playing and and so that, you know, major influence on me. But but David sang on all kinds of people's stuff. I know that he did. I, I didn't get a solo album until years later. I was already, you know, grown up enough to have uh, turned on myself. And and but I'd certainly listened to uh, if I could only remember my name. I listened to that incessantly. You know, I had read Electrocooling Acid Tests and uh, and you know, knew all about the Merry Pranksters and the Grateful Dead and all that. And and for people who've never heard his first solo album, it is the who's who of of that scene. It is some of the cuts feature most of the Grateful Dead, uh, Phil Lash on bass, Jerry Garcia on guitar and on pedal steel. Um, Where's on Bob Where's on there? Uh, Kreutzmann's on there. Mickey Hart's probably on there too. But other cuts uh, feature Jefferson Airplane people, Jack Cassidy and and Norm McAlkinen. Great Slick sings on it. Johnny Mitchell sings on it. Uh, guys from the original Santana are on some of the cuts. And it, uh, it was not very well received at the time, which is surprising because now people, some people list it on the top album list of albums from that era. It was, uh, it was certainly ahead of its time. It wasn't Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It wasn't The Birds. And I think certain critics and stuff didn't like the fact just like they don't like Dylan or Neil Young when they go off and do something really different. But um, it was not that well received, but, but it certainly has some wonderful stuff on it. So, uh, so I got into that fairly early on. And then I love his songs on the CSN album, uh, Anything at All and In My Dreams. Uh, and, and I love In My Dreams too because of uh, Stephen Stills' extremely tasty guitar work. But, um, and and yeah. Shadow Captain. Um, later stuff with them with uh, Delta, I really love that. And then the Craig Dorgy penned tune uh, "Have a Good Time" that David sings on. You know, at the time I wasn't aware of just how out of it, how bad his drug use went. A lot of people know when his when the the uh, girlfriend that he wrote Guinevere for uh, basically 
went out in the car to run errands with the cat in the car and the cat, as far as they believe, got under the pedals or whatever and she, you know, she lost control of the car and was killed. Uh, it really destroyed him and and he went from being, you know, a hippie and a freak who, who dropped acid and and uh, smoked a lot of pot into somebody who, you know, went into a very dark place and, and you know, practically killed himself with... Uh, cocaine and heroin and all that and and was never the same since you know and um and so i didn't really know a lot about that so i didn't know by the time they made allies that he basically couldn't play and couldn't do anything and and you know just came in and did his vocals and that's all there really was to it while the other guys buoyed him up but but he certainly wrote some wonderful songs uh I love tri Triad. I love uh, Lee Shore, particularly the version from Four Way Street with Graham Nash Harmony. Almost Cut My Hair, Long Time Gone, of course, which he wrote after the assassination of Robert Kennedy. And, you know, just the, just the fact that when you see, when you see Graham Nash and Stephen Stills together, or you see others, those guys together, and there's no David Crosby, just how different it actually is without his, without that that middle harmony and the way that Nash would drop down and he would go up and and uh, just absolutely beautiful stuff. So when did you first, was that the first time you saw him live was with Graham Nash? Yeah, that was the very first. My introduction to him live was Crosby and Nash. And I don't know if it was right after that concert, but very, very soon after that, I, I found and dove deep into uh, Crosby and Nash live, that, that record. If I'm remembering everything correctly, it's it's certainly Lindley. Is it Danny Korchmar? It's is it probably the section and and Lindley with them, backing them up. It's not Lee Sklar. It's uh, it's um, Drummond. What was his first name? I can't remember right now. But Lee Sklar is the only one that's not on it. But it's Russ Kunkel. It's Craig Dorgie. Uh, it's David Lindley. And um, so yeah, so it's uh, at that time Running on Empty had already come out. So it was those same guys, except for Lee Sklar. And I had just left school to go out. You know, I'd gotten out of high school and I went out to California, to, I mean, to Oregon to be a hippie and, and headed out on a Greyhound bus to uh, meet up with a couple of sisters that had come from my hometown that were living on a commune out there at the time. Though by the time I got out there, they weren't on the commune anymore. But I had that uh, record on either on, uh, probably on eight track tape at that time, and I listened to it incessantly all the way out there. But yeah, that, that's my all-time favorite version of, of Deja Vu when, when they go out and they everybody does their, takes their solo and there's a bass solo and Lindley's playing the electric violin and then he does a, well, first he starts off by playing this spooky, spooky pedal steel, I mean, uh, lap steel stuff. And then he starts playing the, <laughs> does a solo on the violin and then he actually plays the violin like a, plucks it like a ukulele, you know, and, and uh, uh -huh. Really, you know, I, I really enjoy that. The great cuts on that, Mama Lion, the you know, the jazzier version of Lee Shore, all that stuff. That's a, I highly recommend that. I don't, I think it's out of print. I don't even know if you can get it, but I highly recommend people to find it if they can find Crosby Nash Live. Uh, wonderfully enjoyable, but also you know, there's there's solo albums they put out together. I listen to those an awful lot, and you know, for the last whale, that beautiful non-verbal I and mean, non non-lyric introduction oh, that they yeah. do um you know, tip because uh, crosby's first solo album's got at least it's got two tunes 
maybe three actually that have no, yeah, three tunes that don't have lyrics. And that may have ticked off some of those critics back in the day where he does, you know, where he just laws and non and ahs and, but using it, you know, the human voice as a, as a uh, musical instrument. And I've said for many, many years that if Billie Holiday was the human trumpet and in a lot of respects, she sounds like a, a trumpet with a mute, you know, similar to the way Miles Davis plays, David Crosby is a tenor sax. He has a, he has the purity of a tenor sax. And there's times when he hits those nonverbal things that he does that it's, I mean, it sounds like a, you know, a brass or a woodwind even. Oh, I know. It might sound funny to say, but I don't mean it that way. He, he is like the master of, of singing. Mm, if he, he says, mm, closes his mouth and he can, he sounds exactly like some kind of woodwind. And he does it so often that whenever I hear anybody doing that, I think of him, you know? And I can't remember which album it is right now. I should have looked this stuff up. But the album that he did, you know, he came, started coming out with solo albums again later on in the 80s. And uh, the one that has Yvette in English, which is clearly very inspired by Joni Mitchell. I'm not sure if she got a writing credit on her or not. But it's, uh, it's, it's uh, somebody playing um, a nylon string guitar. But... And the chorus is that Yvette in English saying, please have this, a little taste of instant bliss. But at the end of it, he's, the, it's ending and he just does this little verbal lick. Like a vum, vum, bu, 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 and it sounds like a, you know, sounds like a saxophone player. But um, <laughs> one thing that's well, really has always impressed me is not only that his voice stayed with him, but that there is that famous bootleg that was released uh, officially as Another Stony Evening. That's just the two of them and their D45s and, and a piano and for Graham Nash to play. And David Crosby is extremely sick. And every time he talks, he's got an almost disgusting amount of phlegm and has the flu, oh, yeah. basically. I think they even say it's the flu. And he's like drinking you know, tea and honey throughout the whole thing. But when he sings, you wouldn't even know it. You know, maybe a little bit here and there, but um, but really quite uh, remarkable that somebody can be, uh, be because you know you can guys can hear my throat going out right now just talking. But uh, but how you know <laughs> I have good days and bad days, and there's you know based on the weather and the humidity and the pollen and all that. But that you know that's the difference between somebody like David Crosby and the rest of us, the people that have whether it's Whitney Houston, whoever it is, the people have those amazingly gifted voices whether they have vocal training or not that you know for somebody to be able to uh to and he's famous you know for singing light opera he was you know had the lead in the hms pinafore in school or whatever and is you know as a as a boy you know was clearly uh, uh renowned for his singing at, at a very young age but um but yeah those uh that crosby nash live and and i really enjoyed his solo album you know i had i had those those uh and i had graham nash's you know solo albums and i had uh, Stephen still solo albums and and his albums he did with manassas and all that but david crosby has always held a very special place for me and even though his songs took forever to come out you know he would not write songs very often but um and he also co-wrote you know wooden ships with paul kantner that's another one too but um and i love his vocals on that too but uh yeah, when you're talking about his early stuff, I, I get those '80s CDs mixed up. I know, 
I had two of them. Uh, oh, Yes, I Can was one of them. Yes. And then another was called Thousand Rows. And they came out a few years apart, and I get the tracks mixed up. But when you, you were talking about Yvette in English, another track I really like a lot is called Tracks in the Dust from that album. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, it's funny. I st chronologically, I still have not heard every CSN song yet, and I'm learning a lot more about Crosby solo stuff. And if I'm being honest, I probably discovered Crosby's music solo at the same time as the CSN. And it was way later than that that I go down and chase, you know, Graham Nash's solo stuff or Stills' solo albums, and I, I eventually found it. But for what it's worth, uh, <laughs> terrible pun, sorry about that. Um, I, <laughs> I, chased, I chased Crosby's solo stuff first, and, it, you know, it just works out that we're talking about it today. But his, his contributions to what he did in that group and alone, no doubt, uh, whether I'd recognize it or not, it really shaped my ear for harmony my affection for acoustic guitar. And he was always quoted to say on stage, you know, Nash writes the hits and Stills writes the anthems and I write the weird shit. And it just, it, for whatever reason, I'm sure people would have thought differently if that was a band of three Graham Nashes or three of the same person. And, and you made a comment quite a while ago on this podcast earlier, how the three of them singing, you can still hear them. And conversely, acts like Simon and Garfunkel or the Everly Brothers or a lot of other acts, I don't know that they would admit they do it, but I hear some Simon and Garfunkel songs and it sounds like to me as a listener, they're aiming to have the same tonality in their voices. They're trying to, to blend with each other, not just in the, the notes, but they want to have the same kind of voice on the same track. And it'd be a great question to ask Nash or Stills before we don't get the chance anymore. I wonder what they're trying to do, but whatever they end up doing, like you said perfectly, you can still hear exactly Graham Nash and you can exactly hear stills and it's they're not molding their voice or shaping the notes to try to be each other. They're being very, very true to, you know, the people that they are. Yes, I kind of went back to what I said about how they blew people away at the time. Not only was folk rock still new, but they were applying they were applying pop and jazz mentality to folk music. So they were going both directions. Well, it wasn't real folk music in the sense of a folk song that's 200 years old and nobody knows how to, who wrote it. But by that time, the, the Weavers and Pete Seeker and John Baez and all those people and the Kings and Trio, you know, they, they had popularized that genre. And these people were kind of going back into that with the new mentality, but also borrowing from it. And I think you're absolutely right that the Elver Everly Brothers, their thing was that two two voices as one voice. And the Hollies, uh, Graham Nash, and I, of course I can't remember his name right now, but the guy that Graham Nash, they grew up wanting to be the Everly Brothers and as quite young lads actually accidentally ran into the Everly Brothers in Manchester at the, on the steps of the call where they were going to go see him later that night or later that week and got very encouraging words from them that, you know, follow your dream. And that really led to the Hollies. And, and Simon Garfunkel, same thing. Tom and Jerry, as they were originally performed as teenagers, they were a Everly Brothers copy band. You know, they clearly were based on the Everly Brothers. <laughs> um, and where David Crosby was coming from a completely different point of view, his singing was much more inspired by Chet Baker and other jazz musicians. That's, that's what he heard or or for that matter, Coltrane's, you know, saxophone. And, and he was, that's the way his mind worked. And then of course, you know, 
they, he probably turned on when LSD was still legal. And so he very much embraced the freak mentality. And, and you know, like, just like you said, he let his freak flag fly. He was quite adamant and, and, and proud of that, you know, like Paul Kantner's idea of they really did imagine that this was going to be a cultural revolution that was either going to turn in to its own society separate in a way from regular society or was going to take over society. And I think David Crosby, again, this is at a time of a great deal of political unrest in this country with the legalized bigotry of segregation going on with the, uh, you know, the draft sending kids over to Indochina and stuff the CIA was doing behind the, uh, you know, blinders, as it were, and all over the world and assassinating leaders in different com countries and affecting coups. And so there was a lot of going on. And they were all political to a certain degree when it came to the peace movement. But Crosby was much more. So I just looked up his I just looked up his discography because I, I, you know, we should have done this to begin with. 71 was when, if I want to remember, my name came out. I didn't realize that. I was thinking it was 70, but it was recorded in 70. Uh, he also briefly got together with J.R. Garcia, Phil Lesh, and Bill Kreutzmann of The Grateful Dead uh, under the uh, name David and the Dorks and did some gigs in San Francisco. And, and, uh, and that then led to them coming on and doing his record. A lot of people uh, may not know that at the same time David Crosby was recording that album, Paul Cantor was recording Blows Against the Empire in the same studio uh, with some of the same people. And uh, that really was his, it's, it's rather sanctimonious, you know, like, like um, this idea that the hippies are going to go off in a spaceship, you know, it's kind of taking wooden ships to a stream. But it didn't really, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting and uh, quite psychedelic and and uh, really kind of flows all the way through the whole record. And some people who know David Crosby know the song, uh, Have You Seen the Stars Tonight, which he sings on, um, which also has some really nice Jerry Garcia pedal steel on it. That, uh, that's from that record, but they uh, were recording those at the exact same time and in the same place. But um, but then, and that was, so that came out in 71, 72 was the first Crosby Nash album. And then Wind on the Water, 75. So there's three years that b between those. 76, Whistle Down the Wire, and then Live, 77. So so they were, you know, touring a lot. And I wish I was older and wish I had lived in the West Coast at that time because I would have loved to have seen them all, <laughs> all those times. <laughs> uh, then, oh, yes, I can. Didn't come out until 89. So that was over 10 years later. It was a dozen years after, you know, they released that live album. And then Thousand Roads, 93. So that's four years later. And then it's all coming back to me now that it was a live recording from, yeah, I'm going to say it's the King Biscuit Flower Hour. Was that what that was? I remember that album. Yeah, I, I had that. Yeah. yeah the whiskey, it was a live, the whiskey, go, whiskey, go, go. And uh, in fact, Chris Robinson from the Black Crows is one of the backup singers on it. But uh, wow, I feel like I'm back in college now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so uh, and then there's nothing else until the the double album Crosby and Nash came out in 2004, which I have to say, you know, it's a very slick produced album, but it's uh, it probably could have been a single disc. You know, that's the way I feel about it. I feel like they wanted to put all these songs out and maybe they had been set, you know, wrote all these songs, but but I don't think all of the songs come up to, to uh, 
you know, to the par of, of some of them. But um, I guess the first time you mentioned Tracks in the Dust, I think the first time I heard Tracks in the Dust, Crossroads Nash and Young got back together to do one of those benefit concerts. So we're talking 85 maybe. And he does that song, that's as his solo song. And this was just them playing wooden oh, wow. full band or anything. But, um, but it was the first time they had played with Neil Young since the old days. And I know he did that. This old house of ours is built on dreams. Uh, one of the, you know, sort of his farm aid songs. But I remember hearing that on the radio, like sitting there listening for hours and hours to the songs on the radio and waiting for them to show up, you know, waiting for them to come out and play. And they finally <laughs> did. And it was great fun. Um, so 2004 is that Crosby and Nash. Then Cross comes out in 2014. And Lighthouse is 2016. Sky Trails is 2017. Here, if you listen, is 2018, and then for free, 2021. So the last 10 years of his life, he started putting out all this music. And this isn't even the CPR stuff. This is just his, these are just his official uh, solo stuff. So his CPR stuff, um, that's the band that he did with uh, Jeff Pivar and, and his son, uh, Raymond. Um, oh, come on. What's James Raymond, yeah. James Raymond, thank you. So, what do you know about CPR? What's your What's your experience with them? I can't remember when that came out, but as soon as it did, I certainly dove into it, and that was my first introduction to Jeff Pivar. And then I found out later, um, you know, the longer you go through the internet and the, the older we get, if you get something in your mind, where does that song come from? You can certainly be an expert on the whole thing a few minutes later. But I I didn't gravitate to the writing of that album as much as I wanted to. It was jazzier than I typically listen to. But I agree with your comments earlier about the, the Crosby Nash album could have been, you know, probably six or seven songs smaller. Uh, I think the CPR, I love the sound of it, but it wasn't my kind of music as much as I, like the folk rock of CSN was more my wheelhouse. Not, it's not a dig in any respect, but I didn't, I didn't love the CPR songs as much as I loved their blend. A really, really great uh, musicianship, but of all the stuff he's done, that wasn't the, the thing I reached for first, but I did buy it. I don't know if they made more than one album, but I got the original album, and um, you want to do some, some YouTubing. I do have one really minor disagreement. You said you fell in love with the Deja Vu version on Crosby Live. I fell in love with one I just only found uh, maybe a week ago. Uh, it's it's CPR. Uh, it's some kind of a, like, it's a Sessions at something, and I forget the initials of it, but it looks like it's done in somebody's living room. But go find that where it's CPR doing deja vu, and that uh, it's maybe the NPR's tiny desk. No, piece. it's like that, but it's not not exactly that. But same kind of thing. But it's not acoustic and stripped down. It, it's it's drums, keyboards, oh, really wow. really killer lead guitar from Pivar. I can't tell you that I've heard every version of deja vu, but that was amazing. You know? Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool to do that. I'll seek that out. Back when David Crosby was ill and had to have a liver, liver replacement and didn't know whether he was going to survive or not, uh, this fellow reached out to him claiming to be his son. David Crosby had with a woman uh, when they were very young and put it in 62, I think, and put it up for adoption. And it turned out to be James Raymond. And uh, he was skeptical that it was true that he was the real guy until they met, until he heard the guy sing and play the piano and stuff. And then he... He uh, had no doubt. He felt like there was no question whatsoever that, <laughs> that they were in there. Who knows if they did the DNA a test and all that too. But, but uh, they immediately, you know, uh, hooked up and made music together, wrote a song together. 
got, got uh, Jeff Pivar involved. Uh, my first experience with Jeff Pivar, I went to see Crosby and Nash at Carnegie Hall, and it was just the two of them and Pivar basically doing what Stills would have done, you know, um, the few times that Cross Stills and Nash had toured, you know, just the three of them. And so, uh, and I happened to be, I think I was in the sixth row and I'm sitting in directly behind Pivar's parents. So that was kind of cool to hear them talking <laughs> during the show and stuff with the people they were with. But, um, but that was, that was a great show. And uh, yeah, I guess the first time I saw them, I was 17 and it was, um, so we're talking 77 and I saw them in an amphitheater in Michigan. I grew up in Northwest Ohio and I drove up with some girl to see, uh, to see them. And we were at the very top of the bowl. And then there was like a big lawn behind us, but that was great. That was the first time I got to see Guinevere live. And, um, and, and then I saw them in New York city. It was many years after that. I saw Graham Nash on California and stuff when I was in high school, but when, after I got out of high school, when I was out doing my, uh, my get to know myself before I went to college a year. And, um, but I did not, you know, I didn't <laughs> see, uh, yeah, exactly. David Crosby. Yeah. I had by that time hitchhiked down to LA and cut my hair off and got a job in a corporation as a male boy. But, um, but I got to see him at a no nukes thing and uh, one of the very first no nukes concerts, in fact. But, uh, then I saw them on the pier. There used to be a pier that had concerts here in New York city. Uh, so I saw them in 85, um, and then I saw them a bunch after that because I was no longer in the middle of nowhere in, in Southern Ohio where I'd gone to college and so I and graduate school. So I finally got to see them more and I got to see David's very first uh, show in New York City after he got out of jail. After he, you know, he went to jail in Texas for, for drugs and, and having a legal firearm and stuff like that. And it was in a small place. Uh, with folded chairs, you know, and you were sitting in folded chairs, but it did have a balcony above it. And right when, so it was very small. So I, even though I was like 12th row, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't a huge crowd. And actually while I was standing, waiting to get in, standing on this uh, street in Midtown Manhattan, side street, I turned around and way down at the end of the block, I saw Graham Nash sticking his head around looking at the, <laughs> looking at the line. So I knew he was going to be coming out uh, eventually. <laughs> and but while I was sitting there, um, the lights were going down and I heard that there was some commotion. I could see out of the corner of my eye and I looked up to the right and at the very end of the balcony in the front row where there was a light stand, Eric Clapton was coming down and being seated as the lights were going down. And, and, wow. Eric, and Eric Clapton was David's sponsor, you know, in recovery. Oh, um, you told me that. And, yeah. I forgot that. Yeah. And, and some people may remember, here's a trivia question for you. Um, David Crosby <laughs> Uh, portrayed a, a recovery sponsor on a sitcom. Does anybody remember what show that was? David Crosby portrayed a sitcom uh, recovery sponsor for the star of the show. So we'll get to that later on. Um, Can we do two trivia questions today? Sure, sure. What's, yeah, what's Mario's trivia question? Because you're going to stump me with that one. I want to try to stump you with this one. David Crosby played a pirate in what movie? Ah, that's a great question. That's a great question. So there we have two trivia questions. So, um, but yeah, so I got to see him then, you know, um, and I had mentioned about him, you know, uh, singing 
and with lots of other people. And when you say lots of other people, uh, he recorded and toured, uh, the two of them, Crosby Nash recorded and toured with David Gilmore and also sang Company Numb with him at the, uh, at the wall concert where they, uh, I think they were with, he was, they were with Pink Floyd when they were at the wall concert to, you know, where they're tearing, after they tore down the, the Berlin Wall. But, um, so we have Jackson Brown. Um, we, I know that he has sang with Joni Mitchell. I know that he has, uh, he did something with, I guess there's David and the Dorks. They eventually released it. That's a bootleg album, but you can find that with him, uh, with Jerry Garcia and those guys. Um, some people are famously know that uh, Crosby and Nash were doing a Cross Still Nash and Young album with Stills and Young, but they got they're so angry with each other. They uh, Stills and Young re re erased all of the vocals that Crosby and Nash did and, and released it as Long May You Run as the Stills Young Band. So, uh, yep. you know, that was... <laughs> Ouch. Um, but let me see. All right, let me just actually think about this. So I know they were on a Dave Mason record. They are on uh, at least two James Taylor cuts. They're on Mexico, the Whoa, Whoa, Mexico, and Lighthouse. Uh, they're on an Art Garfunkel record. They're on a, uh, they're, I know they recorded with Carol King. They're on an Elton John record. I'm sure I'm missing people. Um, sure, Phil I'm Collins? People. I know they... Uh, yes, very good, very good, very good, yes. Uh, Phil Collins sang on a David uh, song on one of his records, and, and he sang, uh, backed up uh, Phil Collins on, on some of his songs. Um, uh, who am I missing? Uh, Lucinda Williams, Indigo Girls, um, <laughs> John Mayer. He's... Uh, he's uh, oh, wow. He's on Born and Raised. He's a backup vocal on Born and Raised. And of course, the Jackson Brown stuff. And um, uh, that's all I can come up with right now. But uh, so if anybody can think of anybody else that he's uh, sung with. Um, I had never heard his album Lighthouse, and I'm going to get it now. You know, I've been remiss in that. Um, he, he toured with these three young people, these two women and a young guy. And I think the two women sing on Lighthouse. But... When we were, it took me a few days. Uh, life was very busy and very stressful. And so I, I, of course, saw the news and and absorbed the news. And people started posting videos and posting songs. And I avoided all that. But I then got on there and it was hearing him do Carry Me with those, the Lighthouse Band, I think they might have called themselves. The guy plays like guitar. He kind of the Jeff Pivar guy. Uh, women on, on, uh, keyboards and then a woman who does some multi-instrumental stuff but they all three sing with him and when they get to the voice you know the verse about his mother dying and and uh you know if you could just untie these wings yeah. under the bed i could surely find so that's when it really hit me and all of a sudden i was you know unabashedly unashamedly breaking down and sobbing out at the end of uh, the end of the life of a artist that had meant an, an incredible amount to me and um but then I started doing the deep dive. And if you if nobody's seen the BBC television production of Graham Nash Live, which is basically Crosby and Nash uh, Live, the two of them together with their D45s, uh, probably the same you know time they had recorded that some stony evening, you know, same time period. It's so good. I'd forgotten how good it is. It's on YouTube. It's totally free, the whole show. You know, it's like 50 minutes long. 
And um, and that got me too, because yeah, Graham Nash starts playing a simple man on the piano and by himself. And then Crosby just walks out and bends over and puts his harmony in on the mic that Graham Nash was singing. And that, that, that got me all choked up too. So, but uh, really awesome stuff. But then I started watching all kinds of videos of him, you know, later, later in his life stuff. Um, I saw him most recently. I saw Crosby and Nash with uh, Dean Parks on lead guitar, full band, but Dean Parks, who's probably most famous for doing the uh, doing the lead guitar on Haitian Divorce, but uh, and other Steely Dan stuff. But um, so here, that was awesome. I saw that in town hall from right at the front of the balcony, and then I got to see him um, at City Winery, which uh, is in a different place now in New York City than it was when I saw him. That was the first time I ever spoke to him. And it was like freezing rain and it was uh, miserable out and it was on a weeknight and it was dark. And I was, you know, I had a raincoat, but I had my blue uh, Martin hoodie sweatshirt, the big gold CF Martin on it. And, and as I was coming up, a, a taxi cab like stopped and blocked the crosswalk right before I was gonna walk into the venue. And so I have to go out in the street, in the rainy street and this couple gets out and the, this, this big overcoat with scraggly white hair on the back opens the trunk and this woman baits in the trunk. And I thought, you know, that looks like Jan Crosby or Jan Dance, that's her <laughs> last name. And she pulls out a guitar case. And so I'm standing close enough to touch him. And I say, uh, have a good show, man. And he does up and he turned around real quick at first, like he thought I was going to shoot him, you know, like I was going to be the dude that jumped on him. And he, and he looked at me for a second and, you know, kind of frowned at me. And then he looked down and he saw my Martin, uh, he saw my Martin uh, logo and he looked up at me and he gave me a, you know, uh. crinkly skinny hands and a thumbs up and didn't say anything. And, uh, and then I just said, you know, I just walked in and left him alone because it was raining and, and I didn't realize he was really ill. And he came out in the same thing, oh, wow. a horrible, horrible, deep, ra uh, racking chest cough and kept apologizing because his voice got raggeder as the day as the evening went on. Eventually he lost his voice and 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 couldn't sing anymore. And so the last few uh, the last few numbers, the other other guys had to, you know, did the singing. And maybe it was just the last number, wow. which was but but uh, but he canceled the tour after that. He the next day it was in D.C. and canceled turns out he had walking pneumonia and he canceled the rest of the tour and i was afraid you know he was oh god wasn't gonna make it but you know he lasted almost 20 more years so so uh it was a tough old bird uh speaking of puns um but um <laughs> yeah That's bad. yeah i mean but look at all the health problems he went through you know and the, and the times he's reinvented himself and and um and so have you been playing any of his music lately yourself I really have, and it's, uh, you know, whether it's coincidental or not, when I got my D45 for Christmas, the first thing I did was go find a lot of the stuff that I knew I wanted to listen to closer, and I made it a point to try and learn Guinevere and In My Dreams and Deja Vu, and I'm, I'm tinkering. I'm, I'm getting to the point now where, if I wasn't inspired already, that this news, after, like you said, a little bit of a lull where you don't want to listen to his stuff while you're grieving, it. I'm really trying to make up for some lost time where... Maybe you're like me. You think you have all the time in the world to work on music and, you know, nobody's going anywhere. So what's the rush? And, it, you know, I've ever since December, uh, early January anyway, I've, I'm really invested in trying to get get my David Crosby chops down. And uh, there, there's so much I want to work on just 
because it reminds me how much I like this music, but I've I've been on that kick anyway and you know, like a lot of our listeners could probably say the same thing. You go in your in your spurts where I'm I'm in this frame of mind and I'm doing all this music and you, you go long enough where you forget something else you really love and then you go back to that. I'm definitely on the CSNY, mostly Crosby uh, side of things uh, as of late. And I've, I've been inspired to really uh, not just listen to more of his music, but try to find more articles and um, maybe not necessarily what uh, some other artists are saying about him you know, since his passing, but some, some documentary style stuff that I always meant to see or meant to uh, bookmark. It's, it's, that's where I'm spending most of my internet time lately. And uh, I, I just watched a, I guess it's a one or two part or two or three part thing on uh, Amazon Prime, uh, Laurel Canyon. And, you know, more than the second half of that first hour was, was CSN. And it's, it sounds corny and I don't want to overthink anything, but now when you see him on, on film, it, it just means a little bit more in, in different ways to just catch everything he's saying and listen close more closely. And, and I don't take it for granted as much, but there was a really good part where they're rehashing the same story you talked about a little while ago, where whether it was Cass Elliott or Joni Mitchell's, I forget what this specific documentary cemented as that was where it was, but Mama Cass brought David Crosby to see Stills and, and, uh, I'm sorry, brought Graham Nash to meet Stills and Crosby. And Graham Nash has that famous quote where, you know, they're, they're playing that song. And he's like, we don't know what we're doing. And then after we sang that, we knew exactly what we were going to do. And it was that moment must have just been like, oh, this is what we'll do our entire lives together. And, and it's just to hear, hear those stories are always fun anyway. But now that one of them's gone, you know, it, it's just I don't you don't want to get philosophical and wonder how much they knew when they knew it. But uh they're they're gonna start going now, and it's not to be morbid, but I'm I'm extremely lucky that I got to latch onto his music when I did. I think we could all agree if you're a fan of this kind of music, we're all it's a fortunate thing to to have this soundtrack. And um, yeah, I've that's I'm I'm sort of trying to find what else I haven't seen yet or haven't seen enough times and, and look at it with a a different perspective. Well, I gotta you know that that quote that's going around the internet now says, "Don't waste the time." Time is the final currency, man. Not money, not power, it's time. And he's somebody who got to have second and third chance. Not everybody who needs a liver transplant can get one, finds a donor, not anyone, not everyone who has one succeeds and survives. And, and like I say, he's a tough old bird. He's also an ornery old bird and he's alienated a lot of people. You know, he's famous for his famous for his stubbornness and his temper and he even eventually alienated uh, Graham Nash you know and so they they were out of touch for a very long time and but but you know just like the Beatles and stuff that's when you're in that kind of relationship it's family and it's brothers and and there are many actual blood brothers who don't you know who do end up not speaking to each other and you know whether whether they still love each other or not they uh, they just know they can't be in the same room together anymore sort of thing which is sad when I was a little kid, my brother picked me up the David Crosby songbook when I just started playing guitar, so I was probably 13. Um, he found it at the Goodwill store and brought it home. <laughs> and it actually has tablature. It's the oldest tablature that I knew of. I didn't know tablature actually goes way back, you know, before the 1900s, but, but I had never seen it. And I didn't understand it. I couldn't read music. I couldn't. And I also didn't understand that most of the songs were in alternative tunings. So I would sit there and try to do the, because they also had the little chord square, and I would try to do it. And it didn't sound anything like it was supposed to sound because I didn't, 
I didn't notice that it said tune the, up here, you know, it just showed the, the D A D G D D whatever. And I didn't even notice that. So I literally just cut the pictures uh. out of them, framed them and put them up. <laughs> Years later, I got it, you know, I, I still had enough of Lee Shore and to realize, you know, once I figured that stuff out, I went back and I took the things out of the frames and there was enough of Lee Shore and, and Triad for me to, and page 43 and stuff for me to figure out my own rudimentary versions. Um, and I learned the finger pick because wow. of him because Guinevere was in a, in a guitar magazine. And that's when I learned about the alternate tunings. And oh, you know, like an interview really? Him. It was in Fretz magazine. And and um, and so I had that for years. I don't know what happened to it, but for years and years, I kept cut that out and had kept kept that. So I played Guinevere, but I don't have your vocal chops. And I was never able to sing Guinevere oh, yes, well do. enough to actually perform it. And I feel that way really about Alicia. I do it anyway because I like it, but I don't have that. I don't really have the the, the range and... and, uh, and uh, yes, you tenor do. enough to pull it off, but um, well, it's always fun to sing with you because you can then do you know, can take over the Graham Nash stuff. But uh, so I'm always I'm always happy to sing it with you. But yeah, I do love that song. I think it's a wonderful song. Um, and well, you know, if we're laughing at ourselves about not understanding sheet music, my my, my big uh, hang up when I first started not reading music but tablature, and I would see chords where you see like D slash A which means, you know, D with A in the bass. I used to think that meant D or A. Like, how, how could it be one or the other? Which one should you choose? And, you know, <laughs> trying to work out some songs. I'm like, I think I'll play A this time instead of D. Like, why would you think that? But you just made me think about that when you said, you know, with the tablature. But, no, I, um, I think the real reason you like singing with me is I know the words because I see you sort of singing the words right after I sing them. And let's be honest, in this podcast, I think David Crosby has admitted to that a lot, where he'll sort of, you know, have this light speed timing. If he forgets a lyric, he can make it look like he knew it. And I don't know if it was on a video or in a book, but I have seen him say that where, yeah. you know. I've done that once in a while, but not with Lee Shore. I mean, I, 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 Lee Shore is such a beautiful poem. And, and the story goes that uh, he and Grace Slick and some other people uh, from the airplane were yeah, sailing in the Caribbean and had pulled into some sort of lagoon or something like that where they, you know, it might even have been an uninhabited island and, uh, you know, went swimming and, and expanded their minds as it were. And, um, and, you know, a lot of people, you know, know he was a sailor, but I mean, he was a real sailor and, uh, and absolutely loved it. And, um, and, you know, and scuba diver and all that. One of my favorite pictures of him is him as quite an old man, but not nearly as old as he was, you know, recently. But uh, underwater, giving the peace sign, you can see his face and his big walrus mustache through the, you know, the, his swimming mask. Uh. But, uh, but yeah, he, uh, you know, he's one of those people I would have loved to hang out with. But of course, you know, people said he was genuinely, you know, weird, bizarre. Uh, he's the first one that would have called himself a freak back in 1969, you know, and, and very much... Um, stayed who he was, even though he changed and, you know, cleaned up, got clean, got his life together, married a wonderful woman who, you know, late in life. And, uh, you know, they had a couple of children and he has, you know, James Raymond and there's actually another daughter that he had with somebody else long ago as well out there. But um, sadly, his older brother uh, took his own life in the early 20th century. He was also, you know, he was a big big influence on him musically. And he might actually even appear somehow on if only my, if, uh, if I can only remember my name, I don't remember for certain. Now. Oh, but, um, yeah, gone too soon. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I did not know actually. Um, you know, I you know I'm not sure when this is going to air, but today is actually the anniversary of the Beatles' rooftop concert. And I just watched the whole thing. Uh, it's available on uh, oh. Vimeo, and um, and that you know they, the Beatles never learned to read music, and you know and McCartney and Lennon and, and Harrison all played by ear, and um, and I think you know David's um, natural abilities. I don't know if uh, the Joseph Nash ever learned to read music either. If anybody did, it was Program Nash because he's a piano player. But but also when you listen to his stuff, it sounds very organic and very much like it just makes it up. And um, so I'd be curious to, I never looked that up. You were talking about doing the deep dive into their solo stuff, not just David Cross, but the other guys. A lot of people forget that these artists, they will be really big, you know, and cover Rolling Stone. Uh, considered the first super group, all that stuff, 74, the first giant tour of stadiums and, and, uh, and every time they would get together and tour, but for younger people and other people who move on into modern music, uh, a lot of people forget to listen to their later stuff because it's, you know, they're an artist that's been around a long time and, and there's a lot of great stuff out there from all of those guys. But, uh, but again, David Crosby was, uh, was just getting ready to tour with uh, with Stephen Stills' son, and he was uh, planning to do yet another album. And his most recent album has been highly regarded by people who who have it. And um, so, I think it's, uh, I think it's good uh, for people to do retrospects now, and particularly now that he's gone. So, if you're not familiar, in other words, if you're not familiar with his the stuff he did in the 80s, the 90s, or in the 20th century, I highly recommend you check it out. And, and a lot of the stuff, of course, is available online. It'll be easy to do. So uh, so uh, I think it's just wonderful that he he just kept going, just sailed on. Yeah, so rest in peace, Cross. Uh, thank you so much for the music. Uh, there really isn't, I would have to say, other than Bob Dylan, there isn't another musician out there that has had as great an influence on me in how I write songs and how I play the guitar and in and uh, the kind of music that just uh, puts a hook in me the way that David Crosby's music always has and just takes me along. I'll say the same thing. Thank you very much for all the music. And just like you said, when Warren Zevon passed, you made a quirky comment somewhere on YouTube that I saw where you said, yeah, they, uh, they didn't make two of him or something to that effect. And I know that a lot of people that know you would say the same about you and, and the music community and just people anywhere in any, any respect are lucky uh, to have had you as a, a soundtrack. And I, I know uh, I wouldn't be the same musician or the same appreciator of music uh, or guitar player or name, name it any way you want it. You're, you've definitely you know, made a, a very big impression on me and, and will continue to. And, uh, it's not always the most fun topic to talk about, but I, I'm glad we got this opportunity to remember David Crosby and his music. And I'm remembering we do have two trivia questions to get to before we get totally sad. Why don't you go first, Boom? What's your trivia question? And give me an opportunity to answer. So the question was, on what television sitcom did David Crosby portray the recovery sponsor of the star of the show? The answer is 
The John Larroquette Show. Oh, wow. John Larroquette, who was made famous by Night Court and is now back in the new Night Court, had a sitcom where he was a recovering alcoholic. And David Crosby was his sponsor. And David Crosby would just appear in split screen or basically he was just be always talking to him on the phone. So they probably shot it in his house. But, you know, he just did these things where he would talk, have telephone conversations uh, with John Larroquette. But um, I thought that was pretty cool. Wow, I did not know that. My trivia question, in what feature film was David Crosby a pirate? And when I say that, I don't remember if he was a pirate, but it was a pirate movie and he was in it. What was it? Spoon, do you want to take a guess? Yes, I actually know the answer. It's Steven Spielberg's hook. The, the Peter Pan story retold. Well, if we could bring even the tiniest bit of good tidings to the end of this program, I do want to thank you guys for listening. And, and again, David, thank you very much for the music. Spoon, thank you very much for your time. This has been a little bit of a somber episode of Martins and More, but I'm so glad we got to do it. From all of us at Maury's Music, thanks for listening. Hear you later. This has been a presentation of Maury's Music, your trusted source for Martin and Blue Ridge guitars. Find us online at maurysmusic.com. Music.com.